0: Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm your host, Vanessa Bohm, with Nina Serrano and Julieta Kusnier. We have a great program for our listeners tonight full of news, arts, and culture. We'll hear an interview with Gausa Justa about gentrification in the East Bay. We'll also learn about farmworkers' call for volunteers to collect data in an effort to support education reform for children of farmworker families. Nina Serrano talks with Piñata Dance Collective and Julieta Cusnier speaks with a Costa Rican filmmaker whose film will be featured in the San Francisco International Film Festival that kicks off this week. And of course, we'll bring you our weekly calendar of upcoming events to keep your eye out for. But first, we start with our weekly updates from Brazil and the news. Stay tuned!
1: in the Olympic Games. The International Olympic Committee decided to take over the 2016 Games Administration because of the many delays and problems in the preparations for the event. A few weeks ago, the same bulletin reported on the problems FIFA was facing concerning the World Cup in Brazil. There are so many of them that its president, Joseph Blatter, stated God would help Brazil get things done in time. Rio de Janeiro will host the Olympics in 2016 and the International Olympic Committee seems to be paying attention to FIFA's misadventures. Thomas Baugh, the IOC's president, announced on April 10th that the committee would be taking over the event's administration. An independent consulting firm will be hired to keep track of the construction work and the renovations needed. Several alarms motivated these actions. The cost of the Rio Games are getting close to those of the London Olympics in 2012. While the English event cost 41 billion reais, Rio's budget is now 37 billion reais. When the city was only a candidate in 2008, the expected budget was of 28 billion reais. Sports Federation started to pressure the IOC because of the many delays in the construction of the competing grounds. Seventeen of the 18 associations that are part of the Olympic Committee pointed to problems. The only one that had no complaints was the Volleyball Federation, presided by a Brazilian. For instance, the Guanabara Bay is still very polluted and the International Sailing Federation is not pleased. Another polluted site, the Rodrigo de Freitas Lake, is the site where the rowing competitions will take place. The Engenhão Stadium, built for the Pan American Games in 2007, has been closed for renovations for more than a year and is not scheduled to reopen until 2016. Meanwhile, 25,000 construction workers held a 7-day strike that ended on April 14th. The IOC did not speak openly of a Plan B, but the possibility has circulated in Brazilian media. One possibility would be to transfer some of the events to other cities. Francesco Ricci, a member of the organizing committee of the IOC, said that they had not yet considered taking the games out of Brazil, but that it is possible that a few medals will be handed in other parts of the country. Another source of concern is, of course, the protests that can happen during the games. The World Cup games will happen in 12 cities. If everything goes according to plan, the Rio Olympics will have all of its events happening in the same city, several at the same time. The possibility of a million people march, like the one that happened last year in downtown Rio, frightens the IOC. It would be a logistics nightmare in a city that already has daily traffic jams. With a little bit more than two years until the opening ceremony, the possibility of Rio and Brazil getting gold medals as host of the International Games in 2016 seems fainter every day. For KPFA's La Raza Chronicles, this is Diogo Antonio Rodriguez from São Paulo, Brazil.
2: a mão ainda não toca coração de alcança força da imaginação vai lá força da imaginação
3: This is Vilma V with Noticias Sin Fronteras, news headlines without borders, covering Latino community news for the week ending April 20th. Mexico U.S.-Mexico border activists are reporting that the corporation responsible for building the wall that separates Palestinians and Israelis in the West Bank has been awarded a $145 million contract by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security to construct a, quote, virtual wall along Arizona's border with Mexico. The Israeli company, called Elbit Systems, is currently Israel's top supplier of military technologies and also produces military drones for sale. Their security system, known as an Integrated Fixed Tower Project, or IFT, comprises of a series of security surveillance points outfitted with highly sensitive cameras and radars along the U.S.-Mexico border. Activists are concerned about the linking of immigration reform with an increase in the militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border. Bolivia and Chile. Last week, Bolivian President Evo Morales submitted legal documents to the International Court of Justice in The Hague in a legal attempt to secure Bolivia's claim to access the Pacific Ocean through Chile. Bolivia lost ocean access to Chile during a conflict in the late nineteenth century. The Chilean government, headed by President Michel Bachelet, asserts that the border between the two countries that denies ocean access to Bolivia was fixed by a treaty signed by both countries in 1904. Both leaders publicly expressed a need for dialogue and peaceful engagement in order to resolve this long-standing ocean access issue. Nicaragua Seismologists in Nicaragua report that the country may be in danger of being hit with a major earthquake similar to the one which nearly destroyed the capital, Managua, back in 1972. Within the last few weeks, Nicaragua experienced three earthquakes between 5.1 and 6.7 on the Richter scale. It is feared that the recent tremors has reactivated an existing fault line under Managua. Many Nicaraguans have been sleeping outside in response to the earthquake warnings, and authorities responded by placing. The entire country on quote extreme red alert for several days last week. Colombia, as a result of a recent domestic legal ruling. Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos has been ordered to issue a public apology on behalf of the Colombian government to social activists and trade unions for state crimes committed by the previous Colombian President Álvaro Uribe. From 2005 to 2009, during Uribe's administration, more trade unionists were murdered in Colombia than in the rest of the world combined. Colombia is currently in the middle of a heated presidential election campaign, with its people set to choose a new president on May twenty fifth. 2014. A recently released report entitled Deadly Environment from the advocacy organization Global Witness has found a sharp increase in the killings of activists who work to protect the environment and defend ancestral lands. Between 2002 and 2013, 908 people were murdered defending the environment in 35 different countries with the death rate rising in the last four years to an average of two activists killed every week. This report highlights the acute danger faced by land activists in Latino America, with Brazil topping the list with 448 killings and Honduras coming in second with 109 killings during the 2002-2013 report period. Finally, as many of you may have heard by now, a number of Latino luminaries passed away in the last week. The Nobel Prize winning Colombian novelist Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the Cuban percussionist Armando Peraza, and the Puerto Rican salcero Jose Cheo Feliciano. Cheo Feliciano was killed in an early morning solo car accident last Thursday in San Juan, Puerto Rico. In his 50 plus year musical career, Cheo's music, lyrics, and upbeat improvisations in particular were an inspiration to many Latinos in the U.S. and abroad. So we end this news update with a little piece of his music. We are grateful for the amazing legacies that all three men leave behind. This has been a summary of some of the latest news from Latin America. I'm Vilma V for Noticias Sin Fronteras and La Raza Chronicles. If you have a news item that you would like to share or have us follow, please email larazachronicles at (laughs) kpfa.org.
4: You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza, and today we are going to be able to dive deep into an issue that is affecting. Most people in the Bay Area and actually most people in most cities, which is gentrification and displacement, we are very lucky to have in the studios with us Maria Poblet. She's the executive director of Causa Justa, Just Cause, where she's been organizing around housing rights for 15 years. She is a Chicana in Argentina, and she's been working around these issues First at St. Peter's Housing Committee, St. Peter's merged with Casa Justa. She continued work at this member-based organization to do political education, to do organizing, and to work for a more just Bay Area where people can live and thrive. Thank you so much, Maria, for being here. Sure, thank you. Maria, so we are really excited to have you here because this report that took a long time to produce, Development Without Displacement, Resisting Gentrification in the Bay Area, is very unique. It's unique on a lot of levels, one of which is that it was written in conjunction and the research was done to look at a health impact, to look at some of the many factors, many impacts that gentrification has beyond just people being forced to move and changes in demographics. So walk us through some of the main areas that you all decided to really focus on when you want to look at the impact that gentrification has on communities?
5: Well, we started even before that. I mean, coming from Causa Justa, Just Cause, we organize people who are directly impacted by displacement, Black and Latino families, working class people of all races. We know that gentrification is arrasando with our communities. It's cleaning people out, you know? We see it every day. So we don't need proof that there's a problem, but some people do. And there's nothing like the Alameda County Public Health Department to put that data at the service of the political change that we need. And I think that's the really exciting thing about the report. And we started with the question, what is gentrification? Some people don't know what's happening and don't have a name for it. Some of us do know what's happening, but maybe haven't looked at it in a kind of systemic way. So we came up with a definition. We felt like in taking on this report, what we needed to do was take these big theoretical questions, analytical questions and analyze them from a grassroots perspective. Bring our grassroots experience, our organization building experience, our kind of power building agenda and engage these bigger questions and try to come up with some answers because if it was just up to thinkers, We might not have enough struggle. And if it was just up to fighters, we might not have enough analysis. We define gentrification as a profit. Driven racial and class reconfiguration of urban working class communities and communities of color, communities that have suffered from a history of divestment and abandonment. That's kind of how gentrification starts. It doesn't start with expensive coffee shops moving in, it starts with no services, no coffee shops, no grocery store, suffering schools. That's the beginning of gentrification. That's what some people call the rent gap. And we explored the rent gap in this report. And I think it's really important, particularly for those of us Latino people, people who are organizing in communities of color, to really look at that. Because before gentrification comes divestment, it comes abandonment. Those are the experiences of our communities. And it has everything to do with race and with disparities in health that are connected to race. That's part of the beginning of gentrification, is that divestment that we can see in our neighborhoods. And then afterwards comes this kind of development, but at a huge cost, because it's not a development that people in the neighborhood have been asking for. It's not, here's this grocery store that sells Latino products for the neighbors that are mostly immigrants. Right? This is instead, here comes Whole Foods, you can't really afford what they're selling, and furthermore, if you work there, you won't even have a union. It brings to the fore these questions of development that are really core because the Bay Area is not a place where we don't have development. We have tons of development. So the idea that just development itself would be good for working class communities, for communities of color, is a myth. Development by itself won't lift up the people who need it the most. It won't serve the people who need it the most unless those people are driving the development of their neighborhoods, which is our project as an organization.
4: That's the voice of Maria Povlet. She's the executive director of Causa Justa Just Cause, which is based in Oakland and in San Francisco and does work across the bay to address issues of displacement and gentrification. So, this report that it came out just earlier this month, Development Without Displacement, Resisting Gentrification in the Bay Area, is something that really should be handed out to people as soon as they move to the Bay Area so they can understand the history of the Bay Area, so they can understand how things are changing. There's a one Wonderful map that shows the stages of gentrification in San Francisco and Oakland and also gives that history and that background where people can see that the divestment is not new. And this wonderful report by Causa Justa just cause in collaboration with the Alameda County Department of Public Health, pointed out to a lot of other factors and a lot of other impacts and things that people don't normally think about when they think about gentrification and displacement. What are some things that you think most people, when they think about this important issue, they maybe they don't take into account?
5: Something related to the rising cost of rents is the rent gap. So before rents go up, rents are really low, and development's coming in, and there's a profit motive. If you kick somebody out, you could rent it for a lot more. And the fact that people are seeing that and think it's a problem is a huge opportunity for our movements, because we can win over more people to our vision of development, to community-led and community-serving development. Another underlying kind of foundation of gentrification is public policy, right? The government decides how they're going to deal with these huge corporations like Google, like Facebook, like Airbnb, and they decide that they're going to give Twitter a tax break and say, you don't have to pay any taxes, but you can set up shop in our city because it's going to bring jobs. I don't know anybody who's a long-term, working-class person of color in San Francisco that got a job at Twitter. So the idea that they promote is different than what how it plays out, and the government makes those decisions with or without community input or community advisement, you know, so that's a real issue. And then there's kind of racialized underdevelopment. These neighborhoods that are most impacted are historically African-American neighborhoods. They're historically working class neighborhoods. Those are the neighborhoods that a lot of recent immigrants from Latin America end up in. They're neighborhoods that are underserved for decades and decades before gentrification steps in. And then some of the impacts that people may experience or, or may not know about are the Loss of social, cultural, and community cohesion. If you had your next door neighbor watch your kid every day for the one hour gap between the free school program and when you your husband gets home from work, that gets lost when you get displaced. If you had the only Honduran grocery store where you got your special food that you prepared for family gatherings, like within a bus ride, you lose that, and it's as easy as looking at the film to see how painful the irony is of seeing you have these little flags that have pictures of black jazz musicians and then the neighborhood is full of white people. There's a commodification and an appropriation of culture because the mission is exciting because it's a Latino neighborhood so there's papel picado around. But where are the Mexicans? West Oakland has this long black history. It was a home of the Black Panther Party. And then gentrification is pushing all that away. But then it becomes like a decoration on development. Our people's culture, even the culture of resistance in our communities becomes a decoration. It's horrible. And it's something that we really need to look at because there's also the culture of resistance, the culture of solidarity, the culture of building unity across difference. We need to reclaim that as part of fighting gentrification because we're losing housing security. There's environmental degradation that comes from this kind of development that doesn't have any brakes put on it, any conditions put on it. Just come do whatever you want in our neighborhood is what the city government says. And then they do whatever they want. And then you have stuff like the Lennar development in the Bayview in San Francisco that is built on poisonous land and they're pulling up all of those toxins and people are getting asthma. That's what happens. And then you also have Something that most people don't directly connect, but that we're starting to understand the connection to, and that's criminalization and mass incarceration. When you have public space that's highly contested, is this going to be a bar where hipsters have $6 beers or is this going to be the community place it was before that where people who live in SROs congregate with each other outside because they don't actually have enough space in their low income housing that's a battle that's happening right now on 16th Street for example and half of those people get the police called on them and half of those people don't and people get shot and people get killed and people go to jail there was just there was just a killing in Bernal and it sparked a lot of community outrage. I mean, this young man was really beloved, really working to improve his community. And in this context, it's like you have two different San Francisco's. And I think that's what we see coming down the pike to Oakland. Now, Oakland is completely different, different political situation, it's a different demographic. But some of the things are the same in terms of what is the the government doing about corporate accountability and how much power do communities have. Another hidden dynamic that we uncovered through this report is the loss of political power. So in cities like San Francisco that are really well known for their progressive politics, there's a myth that it's a bubble. You just show up in San Francisco and it's a progressive bubble and you just live in the bubble. That's not true. The reason San Francisco has such a progressive history is that there are decades of people, mostly people of color and women of color who have been organizing in those communities, creating the mandate that then city government had to respond to, organizing everyday people and making advances on labor, on community, on all these important issues in the movement. That's how we got that progressive. We got that progressive by organizing people and those
4: people get pushed out. So do their politics. That's the voice of Maria Povleci. is the executive director of Causa Justa Just Cause. Causa Justa Just Cause is a multiracial grassroots organization building community leadership to achieve justice for low-income San Francisco and Oakland residents. You're listening to Cronicas de la Raza. I'm Julieta Cosnied, And we're talking about an, a report that just came out that is really connecting a lot of dots. Um, Maria was just talking about Alex Nieto, who was murdered in Bernal Heights. We spoke with Benjamin Baxierra, his close friend, who spoke of the organizing and how his murder by the police was very much connected to the fact that he was pushed out of a neighborhood that he used to know all of his neighbors and he returned to his old neighborhood and was seen as an intrusion and was seen as a threat. So this, this, Absolutely. I mean, Alejandro Nieto's situation is totally heartbreaking because that's his neighborhood more
5: than anybody's. And here the police shot him. I mean, it's, it's no longer a safe place for him to be and he lost his life. I mean, that's that's what's really intense about gentrification. There's a level of criminalization of people of color, particularly of young men of color, that's it's a real threat to our communities, to our families, you know? So, when people say, well, we're making the neighborhood better, the question
4: is for who? So that's an important question. So this report actually gets into that pretty thoroughly, which is really wonderful, because unfortunately, when we talk about gentrification, the conversation stops with the idea that people are pushed out and that's the problem. That's the problem, but there are many consequences. So this report was produced in conjunction with the Alameda County Public Health Department, actually the Place Matters team, which is a team of folks who are working to address the inequalities that they see in the in Alameda County through policy change and really trying to target land use and, and food policies and address things from from a whole wide range of different angles so with this report you all were able to pinpoint and name the fact that gentrification is a public health issue and this is something that not a lot of people are saying even though as you mentioned social cohesion there's so many layers so can you talk to us for someone who maybe has never thought of gentrification in public health terms can you name some of the ways that, that you see this as a public health issue
5: What's really helpful about the public health approach to gentrification is that from a public health perspective, everybody's health matters. And in our communities, you're starting often as a, at a disadvantage. People are already living with asthma, with diabetes, with some of these illnesses that are rampant in working-class communities of color because of the lack of access to resources, the lack of political power, the lack of the wages that could pay for fancy things. And of course, every union fight is about health care. So if you're lucky enough to have a union job that could pay the rent, you probably don't have health care or are losing it or lost it for your dependents. These are some of the issues that people face in gentrifying neighborhoods, because these are the issues that working class people face in any conditions, right? And the shrinking public funding and privatization of public programs and services really impacts the people who depend on them. You can't underestimate the impact that it has to, you had your medicine at the neighborhood clinic, but now it got shut down and you have to go to the main clinic, which is two bus rides away, and you don't speak English, what's going to happen to you? You might get off your meds, right? And if you need that prescription for your health, it's going to really impact your health. And if you have a health crisis, it's going to impact your family. It's going to impact the women in the family who always pick up the slack when the public health services are lacking. It's something to think about because it's really integral. You know, it's really tied in together. There's a lot of things that make you healthy and there's a lot of things that make you unhealthy. What's really helpful about the public health perspective is that it's systemic. There's the air you breathe, there's the choices you make, there's The neighborhood you live in, all these things impact your health as a person and then the public health uh, as a collective, right? Something to look at here is we've been told that public health is something that's best taken care of by the private sector, right? All the public clinics are struggling to keep their funding. Most people don't have health care provided by their employers anymore. Most unions that were able to win health care benefits for their members are struggling to keep them now. What we lose in that is huge. We lose the stability of our communities. We lose the quality of the air that we breathe. We lose the transportation that serves working-class people's needs. People lose jobs. All of this impacts the health. You can imagine the stress of somebody who's facing an Ellis Act, and the majority of those people are seniors. They're elders in our community. You can imagine the stress of that, and then compounded with any other illness you may have by the time you're 70, The enormous impact it has on your health. And what's really interesting and maybe nice to think about too, because gentrification can be pretty demoralizing, is that fighting back is good for your health. (laughs) We didn't quite get to write a chapter about that in here, but we did encourage everybody to get involved, to do community organizing. Ana Gutierrez is a member of Causa Justa. She fought like hell for her home that she had had. 34 years she had lived in that home. And she got an Ellis Activiction, and she wasn't sure she wanted to fight, but she was having headaches. She was unable to sleep. She was feeling her heart palpitate. She didn't want to speak in public because she was afraid. She fought like hell to keep her home, and she got to keep it. And it changed her life, and it changed the life of all of us who were around to watch that. Because it's like David and Goliath. I mean, how you think David felt when he hit Goliath? Pretty damn good. And how many other people are that person? Like, there's a thousand Anna's in all our neighborhoods. And the thing about community organizing is... We get to work with thousands of annas, and we get to form the solutions. We're trying to build this struggle and make it bigger. It's bigger than Causa Justa, way bigger than Causa Justa. There is no single organization big enough to address the problem of gentrification and the underlying dynamic of neoliberal development. It's going to
4: take all of us. That's the voice of Maria Povlet. She is the executive director of Causa Justa, Just Cause. You can find out more about them on their website. They've recently produced a, an important report, Development Without Displacement, Resisting Gentrification in the Bay Area. This was con- written in conjunction with the Alameda County Department of Public Health Department. And one thing that I found really exciting, which is something you really don't get to hear much about, are these opportunities to intervene and to, like you said, fight back because unfortunately a lot of people look at gentrification as just inevitable. It's moved so far. How do we turn the tide? It seems like we're just drowning here in a in a sea of inequality. And Causa justa has drafted points that if, if we really decided that, okay, we're going to make this a priority as a society, we know that it's essential to adjust gentrification, not just for the health of vulnerable people, but the health of our community as a whole. If we know that this is true, what are the things that you all recommend we can start doing and start pushing for as at a city council or at a, at a city and a state level? Well, the first thing to do is to change our minds. So
5: we need to understand that gentrification is not natural. Displacement is not inevitable. And everyday people, when they come together, can change the course of history. And if the government is refusing to implement the policies that we want, well, we need to make that happen, right? The good old-fashioned way. There are six things that we're pushing on our local governments to do. Six key principles. So the first one is... Baseline protections for vulnerable residents. If you're vulnerable to gentrification, you're in a neighborhood that's changing quickly and you're in a rent control department, you need protections. If you're not in a rent control department, you need rent control. Uh, These are baseline protections that keep people in their homes. They're crucial. And they're protections that are put into the market. So we can't leave the housing market up to the developers only. Everyday people need to be setting the terms of the housing market. The second is the production and preservation of affordable housing where there is affordable housing that is run by nonprofits, that's run collectively by residents, that's a cooperative or that's affordable within the market like through rent control that needs to be preserved and more housing needs to be developed that's deeply affordable. The third is the stabilization of existing communities. So communities as a whole need stability in order to thrive. A community is not made up of just one family. It's like hundreds of families and the networks that bring people together, the family-owned businesses. All of that needs to be preserved. The fourth is... A non market based approach to housing and community development. So, some people think the market is going to take care of everything and we just, you know, competition works itself out and if there's, it's a supply and demand problem. It's really not a supply and demand problem. If we approach the problem of housing in a way that's about community needs, we can really make some advances and we can't rely on the market by itself because the market is made by human beings and they make decisions. If anything, that's what we learned from the Occupy movement, right? Half of those people worked for the machine that made those decisions and they were like, hey, wait a minute, this isn't working. So I hope that whistleblowers come out um, in terms of the housing market as well because Human beings are making those decisions, so we the people need to be making those decisions. The fifth is displacement prevention needs to be a priority, and not just in Oakland, not just in San Francisco. It needs to be regional. When people leave a Bay Area city that's gentrifying, they go to another Bay Area city. They don't want to leave their community. They try to find the closest place they can, and then people end up taking a bus and and a BART, and another bus from Pittsburgh to San Francisco to clean a hotel room. And that is something we have to understand, the regional scale of the problem. And then we need a regional scale of the solution. We need these city governments that are all experiencing various levels of the same gentrification dynamic to work together and to have a regional approach to keep people in their homes, to keep working class communities of color in their cities. And the last principle which is really important to us is that planning needs to be participatory from the bottom up the solutions look really different if you ask people in West Oakland what kind of development do they need they're going to say something very different than the gentrifiers who are coming in and actually if you ask some of the people who are coming in who are new to the neighborhood They don't know, they don't know the background. They don't know that they're riding a wave that's pushing people out sometimes. And sometimes when they find out, they wanna do something that can be helpful. And this is why a participatory process is important. It puts people into dialogue and it makes progressive
4: change possible. That's the voice of Maria Povlecci, is the executive director of Causa Justa Just Cause. And this whole report is really a call to action. That's how you close the report saying now we have even more information. People already felt it in their bodies, felt it in their communities, the importance and the urgency to act to address gentrification and displacement. But now this is just even more fuel for that. So I know that Causa Justa is constantly working with its members and doing different actions to call attention to these principles. And to So tell us about what's happening later this week. How can people get involved and join, join this movement?
5: April 26th will be a very exciting day. There will be two important movement events happening at 10 a.m. There will be a people's forum in Oakland called Displacing Gentrification, a people's forum to build unity in the fight for our communities at Met West High School on 1100 Third Avenue in Oakland. So this is a place for people to get involved. At Causa Justa, we organize mostly black and Latino families who are facing displacement, and they're the most impacted. We have it all in our report, but they're not the only ones impacted. And, of course, we can't reach everybody. It's impossible. And we don't have the illusion that we can do this by ourselves. So this meeting is done in coordination with a ton of local activists and organizers, and we want everybody to come out. Let's roll up our sleeves and solve this problem together. And then on the same day, at noon, There will be a big rally in San Francisco, Act Now, Our City, Our Homes. That's at Civic Center at noon. That will be a big mobilization, and it will be the beginning of signature gathering for the anti-speculation tax in San Francisco. The anti-speculation tax will de-incentivize flipping properties, which is such a common thing
4: in, in San Francisco. So if there are people listening that can't attend those actions but really want to get involved, how can people join in and support Causa Justa and become part of the larger network? You can sign up for updates at our website, which
5: is cjjc.org, and... If you are in a different city, we are part of a national alliance called the Right to the City Alliance, and we have the Homes for All campaign that has a website, homesforall.org. It's the time to stand up against gentrification. I just came back from an important movement meeting in Detroit, and they're facing gentrification too. And there's a lot of people in a lot of different cities Trying to deal with this issue, we need to come together because
4: it's only all of us coming together that will be big enough. You know, we need a movement too big to fail. That's the voice of Maria Poblet, she's executive director of Causa Just Cause, and they've been working on this issue for many, many years, and find out more at their website, go to cjjc.org, and stay up on their events. Muchísimas gracias por estar con nosotros, realmente, we're super happy to have you here, and we look forward to getting more updates on all the great work that Causa Justa is doing. Ha sido un gran placer.
6: This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. I have on the line Dr. Anne Lopez, who has a special request that she's making to La Raza Chronicles listeners. Welcome, Anne, to La Raza Chronicles. Thank you. So what is this request that you would like to make?
7: Well, we're looking for volunteers, bilingual volunteers, to assist us in changing a mandate that requires that uh, immigrants at the 24 migrant camps in California leave the camp at the end of the harvest season. And the problem with this is that it interrupts their children's education such that only about 1 in 10 of the children ever graduate from high school, so we're attempting to overturn that mandate so that they at least can stay and have the option of staying in their children's district, so that the children can have uninterrupted education throughout the school year.
6: So, Dr. Ann Lopez, when you say "we," who is this "we" that's making the call?
7: Yes, I am from Center for Farmworker Families. And we're working with the Human Agenda Group with immigration attorney Richard Hobbs in San Jose.
6: And what is expected of the volunteer?
7: What we need is to collect data from four of the 24 migrant camps. And so the volunteer would join us to go out to a migrant camp and interview the migrants concerning how uh, leaving the camp and having their children's education interrupted during the school year impact their education and whether or not the migrant parents themselves would like the option of remaining in their, their children's school district.
6: And what will you do with this data?
7: This data then will be collated and we will present it to the state legislature
6: in hopes, of course, that this ruling doesn't happen?
7: Well, or that it would be overturned, because right now they have to move at least 50 miles away in order to return to the camp. And so some of the people that I know in the migrant camp that I work in, Buena Vista in Watsonville, some of them have children that go to up to four schools in two countries, in two languages. And uh, how is anyone supposed to be successful academically with that kind of a situation?
6: So if people want to help and be part of the team that goes to these different migrant camps and collects the information and maybe helps turn the laws around, how can they contact you?
7: Well, they can contact our uh, volunteer coordinator. Her name is Celeste Enriquez, 408 Eight three five two one four five.
6: Can you give that number again, please?
7: Yeah, four zero eight eight three five two one four five.
6: And is this just for bilingual people,
7: English well, Spanish? Well, preferably because the people we're interviewing are monolingual Spanish. However, if um if people who are just English speakers would like to participate, we have other activities they can participate in as well.
6: And is there a website people can go to for more information?
7: You can contact uh, Celeste at her email and she can send information to you. We're having two orientation meetings. One is this coming Saturday, April 26th from 10 to noon in San Jose and another one on May 3rd in Santa Cruz from 10 to noon. So please
6: give her email again. Yeah, her
7: email is Enriquez, E-N-R-I-Q-U-E-Z, and then period, Celeste, C-E-L-E-S-T-E, at gmail.com.
6: Well, thank you. And thank you, listeners, all of you who are able to respond to this much-needed work, this much-needed call. Thank you, Dr. and Lopez.
7: Thank you for calling. It's
6: a pleasure. Bajo el
2: negro manto del humo Se abre un valle de la ansiedad Ya se distingue bloque y concreto La hierba santa las cajas de fab En este valle de asfalto y plomo Se come el chile, tortilla y sal Y en la laguna de sochi Xochimilco
4: you're listening to la raza chronicles crónicas de la raza we are very lucky to have on the line with us Costa Rican filmmaker Neto Villalobos. He's feature film, All About the Feathers, is going to be showing as part of the San Francisco International Film Festival. It's a film I had the pleasure to watch, and it really tells a, a story of country life in the sense that you really get a sense of place and you get us you get to feel what it's like to live in part of Costa Rica. So Nieto, thank you so much for joining us. We're really happy to get to chat with you before you come to San Francisco and your film premieres here.
8: Hi, hi, everyone. I'm very happy to be talking here at the radio program. And I'm also excited to go to San Francisco because I've never been there.
4: So your film, it's a story that it's hard to summarize because it really is more for me, at least. I walked away with more with feelings than, than the plot twists so much. It, it transmits a lot of uh, the sentiment of what life is like for the character. For people who haven't had a chance to meet Chalo, the main character in your film, all about the feathers, You know, he's a security guard. Can you tell us about him?
8: In another festival, they said it's a movie about a security guard who's obsessed with his cock.
4: <laughs> wow! It's
8: very funny. Well, the movie is a deadpan comedy, and Chalo is a a lonely security guard who wants a gamecock to go to the cockfighting rooster. I don't know the cockfights. And when he finds the the rooster, he starts to meet some other people and and to make some friends that he didn't have before. So it's a a deadpan comedy about friendship and about loneliness and about living in a different part of Costa Rica. It's not a movie about beaches and forests and all the nature we have here that it's amazing. It's more about feelings.
4: That's the voice of Neto Villalobos. He's going to be sharing with us his feature film. He's going to be presenting it as part of the San Francisco International Film Festival. It's called All About the Feathers. Tell us a little bit more about where it's shot, because you're right. When people think about Costa Rica, they're thinking, oh, I'm going to be on the Caribbean coast, or I'm going to be in busy San Jose.
8: We shot the entire film on a place called Puriscal. It's uh, 45 minutes from San Jose. And it used to be like a very important town a long time ago. And now it's completely forgotten. So it's kind of a mixture between San Jose and like an old uh, abandoned city that also looks a lot like some places in San Jose, but it it takes place in another town. And it's about people who, who doesn't have... A lot of things to do but they they try to follow their dreams and they have like very small dreams but they look forward to to fulfill their, their dreams
4: not a lot of films from Costa Rica get shown here in the Bay Area and we're really lucky to be able to see your film and you'll be here and be able to answer questions
8: very funny that there is a fact that last year they made five films in Costa Rica and in the whole complete 20th century they only make eight films it's
4: changing a lot the golden era of costa rican cinema this is yeah, wonderful
8: it's very i don't know if, if it's funny or depressing but <laughs> but i think it, it says a lot of of the country that now people can make films and we're trying to tell our stories
4: and something i really appreciated neto Villalobos, lobos was that the language the dialogue in your film it just feels so natural and for me by the end of the film, I was picking up these like Costa Rican. I was like, my, my. I was like, and you yeah. really get the flavor of how people talk in this sense that it feels so colloquial. And when I read about your film, I read that a lot of the actors are non-professional actors. That really rang true because it felt so natural. It felt so real. So can you tell us about that in your process in terms of dialogue and choosing your actors?
8: Mostly all of them are non-actors, people who doesn't have any experience. Some of them are motorcycle messengers the other is he used to be a, like an agriculture then a construction guy then a Hare Krishna now he's a contemporary dancer and there's another the girl she's the only actress but she also sells savon, and she also works as a therapist so everyone was doing another things and I took them because they had a lot of the personality of the characters I wrote and we started working with them. I had dialogues, but at the end, I didn't work with the exact dialogues and they didn't have to memorize everything. They just have to improvise in the way they talk and say what, what I want them to say, but but in, in their way. The way they talk, the slang they use. People also from Latin America, they watch the film and they're like, I didn't understand what they said even though it's Spanish as well.
4: Your film, you're going to be showing it in a few different locations here in the Bay Area. Tell our listeners how they can see all about the feathers on the big screen.
8: They're going to show the film on the 25th at the BAM, also on the 27th and the 29th at Sundance Kabuki Cinema. They're going to show it three times. The three times it's uh, at night, 6.30 and 8.45. And if they got more questions, they can go to the sffs.org and look all about the feathers. So they can watch the trailer and the schedule.
4: Will you be attending any of any of the screenings?
8: Yeah, I'm going to be attending the three screenings.
4: Thank you so much. That's the voice of Neto Villalobos. You can follow his film on Facebook and you can definitely watch his film just around the corner as part of the San Francisco International Film Festival. Muchísimas gracias.
8: Saludos a la raza.
6: This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I have in the studio today Executive Director and Chief Choreographer of the Piñata Dance Collective, Elizabeth Rubion. Elizabeth, it's a pleasure to have you here, especially since we've heard the news that you've received a residency in Mexico in dance. Tell us all about it. Thank you. I'm
9: glad to be here. Yes, this is a residency that's one month long. It's in Chapala, Jalisco, Mexico, and I will be going there in the middle of May and returning in the middle of June. And what do you plan to do in that residency? plan to research. I plan to absorb the culture. It's actually the first time I'm able to visit Mexico, which is half of my heritage. So it's quite special for me personally, on a personal level. This residency is normally given to writers and artists, fine artists, but I'm their first choreographer, so I will have to look for studio space <laughs> and find dancers.
6: Well, it sounds very exciting. You talked about your family heritage being from Mexico. I see that your grandmother was a wonderful graphic and visual artist.
9: Yes, it's true. Her name is Maklovia Duran Lujan Bubion, and she passed away when I was 12, but left a legacy of hundreds of drawings and poems and prayers that she had written for not only herself, but for her children and for her grandchildren. And wasn't one of your first pieces based on her work? Yes, yes. Well, I guess the first piece of the Piñata Dance Collective, I've been dancing for 25 years. Yeah, I did that piece three years ago. And what was It was called Maclovia's Birds, Inspirados por el arte de mi abuelita. And it was a multidisciplinary theater production with dancers and live music and video. And what is your dance based on? Does it incorporate, for example... Aztec dance? Mine does not, but I do research Aztec cosmology and I incorporate the um, stories that I read about into my contemporary genre.
6: Tell us about the benefit, the upcoming benefit you're going to be having for this residency.
9: Yeah, it's at Shaw Anderson Dance Center on May 4th at 4 p.m. It's a Sunday afternoon. It's informal and it's to raise funds for my residency to be able to dance for a month out of the country. And I have Invited some amazing artists and musicians, including Coatamotec, who's an Aztec dancer, Catherine Hay, who is a Chinese traditional dancer, and three contemporary dancers Sophie Stanley, Dominique Nigro, and Jeanette Mayle. I also have incredible musicians, Afia Walking Tree, my longtime collaborator, Regina Wells, also another collaborator, and Bryce Mitchell. And we are all going to be taking the audience on a I'd say a visual and auditory journey of the history of the piñata which actually started in China <laughs> really yeah
6: i noticed that when i buy the made in china piñatas that they're almost impossible <laughs> to break (laughs) It usually takes somebody's dad to come in and give it a giant whack. Yes. What is the
9: history of the piñata? Well, it actually has two, I'd say, birth centers. And one of them is in China in the 14th century. And Marco Polo went to China in his travels and returned with the piñata and spaghetti and lace. (laughs) And I I don't know if they still use that particular ritual for their New Year's celebration, but that that's how it first began, and then the Catholics of Italy and Spain Catholicized it and turned it into beating away your seven deadly sins. and. Brought that to Mexico and basically subjugated the Aztec tradition, which was a prayer for Huitzilopochtli. Which
6: also had something to do with beating something and then it would break and gifts would fall out?
9: Yes, it's unclear exactly what the uh, ritual entailed, but during the time of, like in December, the solstice, when they were praying to ask for the return of the sun and that they did have a clay pot piñata that I'm not sure if it was broken or if it was just prayed into. Not sure about the history of that, but I'm open to researching more about that. Well, this (coughs) residency is
6: going to be a great opportunity for just exactly that kind of research. So where is the Shawl Anderson Studio located?
9: Shaw Anderson's in Berkeley. It's been there for 52 years, and you can find it on the web on shallanderson.org. And what time on May 4th? 4 p.m. in the afternoon. So, thank you so much.
6: This will be very exciting. We'll love to hear about it when you return. Thank you so
9: much, Elizabeth of the Pinata Dance Collective. Pinata Solo. In the beginning, I am a beat red baby. Born in a heat wave in the L.A. basin, candy melts inside a piñata moon hanging in the backyard. Four sweaty brothers with blood-stained knees line up with a baseball bat, papa pulls the rope, mom sleeps in the shade. I am suspended in the air by two sisters fighting over who will hold the baby. Their talons begin to slip as they pull. Dale, dale, dale. I am slipping. No pierdas el tino. She is sleeping. Porque si lo pierdes. They are fighting. Pierdes el camino. Who will catch me? Pulling skin off the bone. They have more color than me, more language, and they are hungry. The piñata moon breaks and I fall into the grate alone. On the ground with no skin, I get lighter, breaking up into small pieces of pink, yellow, green, saltwater taffy wrapped in wax paper, enough to go around for everyone. I am generosity. Present time. Yo soy una media luna, pero soy un todo mujer. Is being a whole woman enough? I am only fractions of all the other things half Mexican, half Canadian, half a mother. Wait, I am a whole mother, but only 50% of the time. How can a mother be half? How can the moon be half? The moon is always whole. You just can't always see her. It's not true that no one caught me. The earth took me for her own. There is a reason for gravity. Tiny, sticky hands gather me up one piece at a time. You just heard
6: Elizabeth Rubion of the Piñata Dance Collective reading her original poem. Tonight, La Raza Chronicles honors the life and memory of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the great Colombian writer who passed this Thursday, April 17, 2014, We stand with people globally who mourn his loss and celebrate his great literary works and intellectual leadership. Besides introducing most of us to magical realism, Gabo, as he's also known, was always in the front lines in the international struggles against injustice. Famed novelist Isabel Allende said, quote, In a way he conquered readers and conquered the world and told the world about us Latin Americans and told us who we are. In his pages we saw ourselves in a mirror. Gabo once wrote, I only write so my friends will love me more. And they did. Millions of people in many languages loved his work. He was a popular writer. Today, we know the pain of his absence, but as the great Cuban poet José Martí has said, quote, death is not real when the work of life has been well done, unquote. Gabriel García Márquez's work will be eternal. Gabriel García Márquez presente ahora y siempre.
2: Hola, buenas noches, bienvenidas y bienvenidos a Calendario de las Crónicas de la Raza. Yo soy Silvia Molale Aguirre, aquí con algunos eventos que suenan súper interesantes. El primero, the first one, Los Enzontles Cultural Arts Center presents a Día del Niño event on Saturday morning, April 26th at 11 a.m. at its center in San Pablo. The Children's Day celebration features an interactive music and dance performance by Los Enzontles aimed at kids and their families. Kids will learn about traditional Mexican musical instruments and have fun with hands-on rhythm, dance, and art activities. That's this Saturday, April 26th at 11 a.m. at Los Enzontles Mexican Art Center. El Día del Niño, una celebración en San Pablo. For more information, call 510 2 Three three eight zero one five. That's 510 233 8015 This Saturday, April 26th at 7 p.m. at Brava Theater, there will be a 2014 Carnaval San Francisco King and Queen competition. Winners will serve as official ambassadors of the 2014 Carnaval San Francisco Grand Parade. For more information, go to www.brava.org That's it. For this week's La Raza Calendar, yo soy Silvio Malali Aguirre. Que pasen buenas noches, mucho gusto, y nos vemos pronto. Gracias.
0: You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles Crónicas de la Raza on KPFA. If you like tonight's program or would like to share it with a friend, go to www.kpfa.org. And make sure to like us on Facebook to keep updated on arts, news, and culture in the Latino community. Hasta la próxima. Until next week, buenas noches.